Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this day and that we can look at this text with new eyes, new ears, and warmed hearts to the reality of your grace towards us. And I pray that we would indeed see that today, no matter where we are in the spectrum of our journeys, so that you would be glorified in our midst and we would know you and follow you. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it's, it's fascinating that the lectionary takes us to texts you really don't want to preach. Um, you know, I taught on this extensively in 2009. You know, many of you remember it, but the reality is not many of you remembered it. Because that's what happens, right? I mean, you know, preaching is just one of those things you just got to keep coming back to and back to and back to. And the other reality is there were several families among us here at Christ Church that never heard the parable of prodigal son among us. So it's always good to go back to a well-familiar passage. And I'm asking each and every one of us to put our presuppositions and assumptions aside and allow the Holy Spirit to speak into us because this is a parable. Parables are stories Jesus told with spiritual truths embedded in them so that they can touch our hearts no matter where we are in our journey. All right? So what Jesus is doing here, he has got two categories of people, as we know. And you have the tax collectors and sinners over here. And you've got the religious types, the Pharisees and scribes over here, all gathered in one place. And the Pharisees and scribes are diognomizing. You know, that's Greek for grumbling. All right? But that word is only used twice in the whole New Testament, which means this. They're grumbling. As we know, grumbling is complaining or protesting about something in kind of a muted way. But this is more. These guys are seething over Jesus, this rabbi who has all this following, loves to eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Because Jesus, in a pure, true way, has embodied Billy Joel's Only the Good Die Young. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cries with the saints because the sinners are a lot more fun. And they are. In a lot of ways. You know that's true, right? I'd rather hang around non-believing, fun people than stuck-up, stuffy religious types any day. Right? So what's happening here, they've got this complaining going on, and Jesus gives us definitions throughout this parable. So here's what we learn. We learn what sin truly is. We learn in this parable who God truly is, and we learn about our response. Although it's an implication, it comes clear toward the end of this sermon. We learn what sin is, we learn who God is and what he's like, and we learn what a true response should be to this revelation. So first, let's look at what sin is. All right, This is a parable said in two acts, right? From verse 11 to 24 is Act 1 with the younger son. And then Act 2, the older son with the remainder of the parable from verses 25 
to 32. And I like to call these kind of borrowing from Tim Keller and the Prodigal God. Many of you remember we did that study back then, right when we lost our building in 2011. Sue Hill and Kimmy taught through the book on the parable of Prodigal God, and we even did a sermon series on it. But like I said, this is our text for the day. And I borrow these a little bit from him, but not the exact same, because this is Cleveland suburbs, not Manhattan. The first one is from Tim Keller. It's the younger son. It's the, it's the way of self-discovery. You know these types. You might have been these types. You might be this type. The way of self-discovery is to follow my dreams and follow my passions and follow my sensualities. It's the kid who leaves Cleveland and goes to Cal Berkeley and dad says, okay, have at it, you know? Yeah, spoken as a true Southern California guy, he's laughing more than anybody because everybody knows Cal Berkeley is so different from the rest of this country. That's why RZIM goes there every year now because they produce tremendous fruit in this foreign land of Berkeley, California, all right? Because that's where these kids go. It's the way of sex, drug, and rock and roll. All right? Then there's the way of self-righteousness, I'll call it. It's the doing all the right things. You're the good kid. You're not going to go to Cal Berkeley. You're going to go to Ohio State. And you're going to get a full ride. And you're going to make grandpa and grandma and the whole family just obnoxiously proud of you. All right? Because you're a good kid. All right? And within that category of the way of righteousness is a subcategory of my way Christianity, by the way. You know? It's you've done all the right things. And you know what the scripture says, but yeah, I'm not going to do this. I'll lay that to the side and I'll live my, my way. Okay? I'll do it by my definition. And so what Jesus is doing here, giving a definition of what sin is, because it's interesting, the good son and the bad son are both alienated from the father in this parable. Because they both wanted the father's things and not a relationship with the father. They used the father to get what they really loved, which was the wealth, the status, and all the stuff. All right? They're both lost. One is lost by his badness. I don't know if that's a word. But then the other one's lost by his goodness. And as far as we can tell, when you get to the end of the parable, the lost one is saved. The, the younger one is the one who's saved. And the older one's not. And the good one is lost, not in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. He says, look, I've never disobeyed you. Really. Can any of us ever say we never disobeyed our father? (laughs) Ever. If you have, let's talk Good Friday at confession. (laughs) I do offer confession on Good Friday. But this guy's proud of his life. It's not his sin who keeps him from the Father. It's his righteousness which keeps him from the Father. Because he's really self-righteous. Okay? So the younger brothers run away. That's sin. We get it. Right? We all get it. And they live however they want. 
older brothers sin by doing the right thing. And they both believe that that's the way you ought to live life. I live this way, self-discovery, awesome, follow my passions. And the other ones, moral people say, no, that's disastrous. Good people are in, bad people are out. And self-discovery people say, the open and progressive-minded people are in, the bigoted and judgmental people are out. And Jesus says, you got it wrong. It's the humble who are in, and the proud are out. It's the people who know that they're not good, and by God's grace, they're welcomed into the family who are in. And the folks, they think they're on the right side of the divides are the ones who are out. So the good news of Jesus Christ is not self-discovery. It's not morality. For those are the two ways for a person to be their own savior, quite frankly, right? The self-discovery get control by running away, taking the father's stuff and going. The other one does so by staying and being good, getting confirmed, getting my Bible and my blanket at graduation and going and doing all the right things. But there's no relationship there. And in that way, Jesus might be your example, but he's not your savior. You're avoiding Jesus by avoiding your sin, perhaps. But you control God and the people around you by getting what you want, which is status, instead of God himself. Because that's what religious people do. They obey God to get things, and followers of Jesus obey God to get God. To know him, to delight in him, to follow him, to bless our neighbors out of a love for him. You see, what Jesus is bringing out here is both the way of self-discovery and the way of morality are both awful. And they cause a lot of pain in people's lives. The younger brothers, by causing a lot of damage in families and friends, and a lot of pain. The older brothers, by always looking down on other people. So what's your motivation for following Jesus? To get stuff? or out of a love for who he is and what he's done. See, it's, 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 it's interesting. When you look at the younger sin, everybody gets it. But the older brother, it's not so obvious. Well, that's what sin is. Who is God here? Well, the first thing I think we need to look at is how gracious the father is with these two sons in this story, right? The younger son asks him for the inheritance, and he gives it. Let's put this in a modern context, shall we? That's like a 16-year-old Gene Sherman walking up to Wes Sherman when I'm 16. My older brother, if it was then, would have had the most of the inheritance, and I would have gotten one-third of my family's property and value. That's like me asking my father, Dad, I wish you were dead. Sell the house and give me my $242,000, which I have coming to me. Because I'm going to get it one day. Why don't you just give it to me right now? Now, you see how rude, disrespectful that is in a 20th, 21st century context? Back then, any ancient Near Eastern father would have publicly taken his son out into the village square, 
publicly rebuked him and probably beaten him. And I will tell you that Wes Sherman would have taken me out in the public square and publicly beaten me. Don't ever talk to me that way again. Yeah, of course. But this father gives it to him. It's shocking to us. It's shocking to these tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes. They can't believe it. But it doesn't stop there. He's still on the porch waiting for him to come home. He's on the porch waiting all this time as he spends. The reason I say $242,000, I went on Zillow and looked up my home in Fairfax, Virginia, in today's dollars. It's worth $803,000 on a third of an acre in Fairfax in this little Virginia countryside place only 16 miles from D.C. And I just did the math. One third of that is $242,000. I can't believe that. That's ridiculous. Thank God I live in Cleveland. <laughs> you know? That's ridiculous. Who wants to live there? It's a great place. I wish I could move it here. But the reality is the older brother does the same thing in a different way. The older brother refuses to come into the house. Imagine he's coming back in from a long, hard, 12-hour day, and he hears the DJ music going. What's, and he thinks, what is the world is going on? And then one of his buddies comes out, hey, your brother's back. And they killed the fattened calf. You understand that, right? I mean, this is the fattened calf. We were saving that for Hanukkah, all right? You, you, and that's enough meat, because they didn't eat meat every day. That's enough meat for the whole village for a whole week, because there's no refrigeration. You're going to keep partying till it's gone. Why? Because he's been welcomed home. Because that's the heart of the Father. And notice... The disrespect, he says in verse uh, 29, but the older brother answered his father, look. He doesn't say father. In the Greek, it's look, you. Would you talk to your dad like that? <laughs> look, you. You've killed the fattened calf. I've never even been thrown a party. Not even a Goat, but you give him the calf of all things. And what does the father do? The father comes out to meet him. He doesn't wait and say, tell that older brother to get his rear end in here. He goes out to him, pursues him and says, son, come in. Because you know what? God always takes the initiative with us no matter where we are in our journey. It's God who waits on the porch. And the text says, and when he was a long way off, he came down and pursued him and hugged him and kissed him. Did you catch when he was coming back and he said, you know, even my father's hired hands have more than I have here. I'm a Jew working in a pigsty. That's not kosher, all right? That's not good. They're, they're working with unclean animals, and he goes, I'm starving here. My, 
the hired hands, meaning those who work for my father who are in the village that are hired into work. They're not servants in the father's house. I will go back and ask to be a plumber or an electrician or a carpenter so I can serve in the house and work my way back into the family. That's what he's trying to do. So he rehearses his speech all the way home. Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I have no longer worthy to call your son. Let me be a hired hand. All right? That's what he's been doing the whole way back. And he gets there and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to call your son. Let me be a hired hand. What does the father do? He embraces him. He kisses him. And even more radical than that, before he even got there, he ran to him. That means he had to hike up his robe, cinch it, expose his legs, which ancient patriarchs never did. It was undignified, and ran to him. Children ran in that culture. Women would run in that culture. It was, it was perfectly culturally acceptable, but not the patriarch. But God doesn't care. He's willing to look like an idiot because he loves us that much and embraces us and calls us home. He embraces us and entreats us to come in. It's a really good piece of beef. It's the fatted calf, son. Come in. Because your brother was dead and now he's alive. You see, God loves us, my friends, to take the initiative in our relationship with him. It's the relationship with the living God. He takes the initiative to clothe us in his righteousness that's not our own. He takes the initiative that, despite your pride, invites you to the celebration. And what he's showing to this group is that he's not treating the Pharisees like a Pharisee would treat a Pharisee. He's treating them like God does. Because in Romans 5, 5, as Paul said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't wait for us to get our act all together. So what's our response to that initiating love of God to us? So we've talked about what sin is. We've saw that, seen that. We now see who God is. Well, what's our response? I would suggest two things from this text. First, you, you need to learn to repent of things other than your sins. The younger brother comes back. He's got a lot of them. They're obvious. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, and, and we think, well, that's how you do it, right? You repent of your sins that way. And you go to summer camp... And your cabin leader has you write all your sins on a big piece of paper. And in the middle of the campfire is this big cross. And you get a nail and you get a hammer. And you nail your sins to the cross at Camp Kumbaya. And then you sing, you know, Oceans by Hillsong. Or, or Shine, Jesus, Shine. Or some emotional song that's really cool. And then, all right, I'm forgiven. I'm good. Boom. Let's go. And that's what we think. But it's so much more radical than that because you got an older brother here who's just as lost. Because in his mind, he's got nothing to repent of. He says, I've, 
always obeyed you. And notice the father doesn't debate him on that point. He doesn't. So how does a person who's lost and has no glaring sins come into a saving relationship with God? See, the difference between a follower of Jesus Christ, which what a Christian is, that's what the word Christian means, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. The difference between a follower of Jesus Christ and another person is, a self-righteous person is this, that a Christian repents of, of all the things they've done wrong, but they also repent for the reasons they've done things right. They recognize the reasons for all the right things they've done before God is just self-justification. And a desire to control God and to control others. And to put God in, the, in their own little personal Jesus box. And when you see that you've been your own Savior and Lord and repent of all the bad things you've done as well as all the good things and you get it this way, it changes everything. You get a confidence that's from above. You're not as concerned about what the world thinks, about what your family thinks, about what your friends and coworkers think. You handle criticism. You're not worried about it, even though people are very, very different than you. And the way we live day by day changes oh so much. And we have a peace and a joy. It's being born again, and it's radical in our culture. Always has been. It's the only way to be a Christian. It's the only Christian there is. Have you done that? Really? Repented of not only the things you've done wrong, but all the motivations for the things you've done right? Secondly, you need to really see the cost of what it did cost to bring you home. And the key is motivation, because the self-righteous person is motivated to get things, and the follower of Jesus obeys God to get God. The self-discovery person doesn't care. But because the follower of Jesus obeys God to get God, because their heart is melted by God's love for them on the cross. Because it costs God everything to bring you home. We see that in the last verse when the father says to the older brother, everything I have is yours. See, that's true. Because the younger brother had liquidated $242,000 and he only has 500 something thousand dollars left. I'm terrible at that math. All right. Everything that the father had belonged to the older brother. Everything. Every fatted calf belonged to the older brother. Every robe, every ring, every pair of shoes, every goat. And the younger brother could only be brought back into the family at the enormous cost of the older brother. It's not free. Someone has to pay. And the older brother's ticked about it. The real older brother saw the turmoil of the father, however. And he said, no, I'll go out and I'll look for him. Father, I'll, I'll go out and look for him. If you look at the two parables before this parable, you got the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, talking about the pursuing 
of the Father's love to the lost. I will go out and look for that lost sheep. I will go out and look for that lost coin. The true older brother came from heaven to earth. Didn't just go from village to village. And paid for us, not with a debit card, but with his life. Because it's on the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed with a robe of honor and a place of honor at his table because of his love for us on that act. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so we could be called sons and daughters of the living God. And finally, Jesus stepped off the porch, comes out of the house and entreats us to come in to a party which was of infinite cost to himself. To the degree that you see that, it will change your world. It will change your motivation and your whole approach to God. And you'll run from your self-discovery ways. You'll run from your self-righteousness and see God for who he is. So what's our application? For you younger brother types, perhaps this morning, the sensual pleasure types, you might think, well, the problem with the world is all those religious people, you know? All the moralism that's out there. The self-righteous people are the problems in the world. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. They're a problem, all right? They are. But your way of self-discovery is a train wreck if it's not already a train wreck. It's going to be a train wreck. It's going to cause a lot of pain. You're wrong. So I invite you to come back week by week because over the next five weeks, the texts that Luke takes us through are the most exciting of the entire year. I promise you that. Carve out this date. It's so exciting. Come and rediscover what real life is all about. Secondly, I've called this the prodigals because there's not just one recklessly extravagant having spent everything person in this passage. There's another. It's God himself. Because he's inviting the Pharisees to see themselves in this story. He's begging them to see it. And there may be some older brother types here. You can tell you are if you watch the news and you're really getting mad all the time. You can tell you are when those other people have let you down. You know, those underachievers. You know, you've done life the right way. And they're all so happy. Why is that? Well, that's the reason you're so unhappy is because you're so good. And what's between you and God is not so much your sins, although there are those. It's your damnable good works. I want to implore you to lay it all down at the foot of the cross once and for all and trust the saving work of Christ for you so that you can come to the party. It's all on him, not on you. It's because of that. It's a true party. And it's a life that's worth living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, which once again reminds us of your great love for us at an infinite cost to yourself. You're the one who took the initiation. 
You're the one who loved us in this way. And, and Lord, we just pray that we would respond to that initiating love so that, oh Lord, you would be glorified in and through us as we seek to follow you today, tomorrow, and for the remainder of our lives with a joy that the world can't touch. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.